Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Every year on August 19th, we recognize International Orangutan Day. Did you know these intelligent and gentle primates are under great threat of extinction primarily due to loss of habitat? Fortunately, there are things you can do at home to help prevent and save these wonderful animals. Peter, let's see how much you know about orangutans. Okay. Orangutans are the largest tree-dwelling animals on Earth. True or false? That is true. That is true. Orangutans are red-haired apes that live where? A, in the tropical rainforests of Sumatra and Borneo in Southeast Asia. B, live only in Nigeria, in Africa. And C, live throughout Africa. Oh, that's A, I'm sure of that. That's true. Orangutans live only on those two islands, Sumatra and Borneo. Orangutans are the only great apes of Asia. And it appears that they are of African origin, but dispersed about 50 million years ago. The average height of an adult male is about 55 inches tall, and they can weigh up to 200 or so pounds. Orangutans have an enormous arm span. A male orangutan has an arm span of about 2 meters, which is 6.6 feet, and can even be up to 8 feet from fingertip to fingertip in the case of a very large male. Orangutans are among the most sexually dimorphic of the primates, and an adult male may be three times heavier than an adult female. Speaking about the males, here's a question for you, Peter. Once a male develops these... He won't tolerate any other adult males in his vicinity and competes with them for access to receptive females. What are these? They're bright orange color coats, a functional opposable thumb and an opposable big toe, or cheek pads? Hmm. Well, let's, I, I don't know, but I thought the juveniles are orange, and I know their thumbs are not going to become opposable. I'm going to have to say the cheek pads. I don't know why. Cheek pads are correct. Sexually mature males develop cheek pads, which frame their faces and make their heads look larger. And in the wild, some males won't develop these cheek pads until they're about 30 years of age. All orangutans do have hands that are very much like ours. They have four long fingers plus an opposable thumb. Their feet have four long toes plus an opposable toe. Right. That's really interesting. Isn't, isn't that? Yeah. Cheek pads are also thought to help extend the range of their vocalizations. And speaking of their vocalizations, orangutans are noisy animals. Orangutans make loud howls and bellows that can be heard from miles in the rainforest. It's usually the males that make these calls, usually to warn other males in their territory and to attract females. And researchers have identified at least 32 orangutan vocalizations. Peter, the word orangutan comes from the Malay words orang hutan, meaning a. Oh, I think I know. Okay. Something, something like animal, something of the forest animal. Very good. Very good. Person of the forest. Orang meaning people and hutan meaning forest. Yeah. The orangutan is one of humankind's closest relatives. In fact, we share nearly 97% of the same DNA. Orangutans spend most of their time up in the trees. As you know, they have these hook-shaped hands and long, strong arms and are easily able to climb and swing from branch to branch. Yet, although these guys are strong and very powerful, everything I read says they are gentle, gentle creatures. I mean, they might just sit for hours gazing. 
and they are intelligent. They make their homes in the trees. They build tree nests each night out of leaves and branches and sleep in these leafy nests high off the ground, which protects them from their predators, which are the tigers and the leopards, although we know the tigers are rare in the wild since humans have killed them off, or most of them off. And you can see in videos and photos that these orangutans also use leafy branches to shelter themselves from rain and sun, and they make umbrellas for themselves out of big leaves. That's cute. So they are indeed smart. They are born with the ability to think and reason. And with their red-orange coat color, they are nicely camouflaged in the rainforest. So here you go, Peter, regarding the family dynamics, the following statement is true. A, there's a very strong relationship or bond between mother and her young, but the male orangutans tend to be alone. B, mother encourages her newborn to fend for him or herself. Or C, the male orangutan is the guardian of the babies. Okay, I happen to know this one. Uh, because I was reading, I read, and uh, it's A, because the male does, is out of there. Exactly right. Mothers carry their offspring for the first five years and actually stay closely alongside their young till about six or seven years, during which they've learned the necessary skills to survive on their own. Baby orangutans rely on mama's nurturing for everything. They're always you see them clutching tightly onto their hair of the mother's stomach area? Yes, they're very cute. Yes, but interestingly, as you said, unlike other great apes, like the grills and the chimpanzees, the male orangutans don't like to live in groups and tend to be alone. So females give birth about once every eight years. And like you said, newborns are very cute with their pink faces that actually change color as they age a little bit, get a little darker. Orangutans eat mostly fruit. Their favorites are huge spiky fruits called durian, but there are actually a few hundred different kinds of fruits they can find in the rainforest. They also eat some flowers, honey, bark, leaves, and insects. The lifespan of orangutans in the wild is what? Uh, I know that one too, 30, uh, 30 to 40 yeah, years. Yes, yes, 30 to 40 years. Yeah. Orangutans are indeed endangered. Peter, an ingredient found in many everyday foods and cosmetic products is contributing to the rapid deforestation of their habitats. What is this ingredient? Oh, that is palm oil, and I'm going to be speaking about that in a moment. That's right. And according to the Sumatran Orangutan Society, orangutan habitat in Sumatra and Borneo is being cleared at an alarming rate for conversion to oil palm plantations. On Sumatra, there's now more than four times as much land cultivated with oil palms as there is orangutan habitat remaining. Lori, I wanted to add a little bit more about the connection between the palm oil cultivation and use and the bad situation orangutans are around the world. Their habitat is being destroyed. Palm oil, first of all, is used in uh, many products, some foods and some household products. The use of palm oil has become more and more prevalent in many foods, including instant noodles and margarine and many prepared breads. And uh, it's just not a healthy fat, so you want to avoid eating it. As you mentioned, the source of it is the oil palm tree. This originated in Africa, but now is all over Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and Indonesia um, especially. And the cultivation of palm oil is really terrible for the rainforest, they are basically cleared and the palm oil tree fields are planted and uh, this results in the destruction of the orangutan habitat. 
about 1,000 to 5,000 orangutans are killed every year because of palm oil development. And they have indeed lost about 90% of their primary rainforest habitat. Wow, I didn't realize it was so high, 90%. Yeah. Furthermore, palm oil cultivation is bad for the environment. It messes up the water table. It decreases biodiversity, obviously, and contributes to climate change through a variety of uh, mechanisms. Now, a little bit more about the products. If you go into your typical grocery store, about half of the food products and household products sold in North America have palm oil in them. And it's very sneaky because it can be listed in the ingredients under a large variety of names, some of which don't seem to be equivalent to palm oil. So you need to do a little reading about this. And really what you need to do is just avoid purchasing or using any of the products and foods that have palm oil. It's very prevalent in lipstick and shampoos and washing detergents. And uh, it's just hiding everywhere. It's become so common. Truly, it's putting so much pressure on the wild orangutan populations. Going even further than that, the whole industry is bad for the local communities. It doesn't supply good, sustainable economics for the locals. There is one more thing I want to add this sort of controversial area about whether palm oil can be grown sustainably. There is a certifying organization called RSPO, which is supposed to verify that your palm oil has been obtained sustainably, but most sources I found are highly suspicious about this and uh, recommend just avoiding its use altogether, which is what we try to do. But, you know, going through this, Lori, I've become much more aware. We've been avoiding palm oil, but I think it's hiding in more of our products than we were aware. And we should look at this a little bit further, don't you think? Absolutely. And Peter, you probably want to know how we got to this point. So next, I'm going to explain the story, and it has to do with the decreased use of unhealthy trans fats in packaged foods and in restaurant foods, and its replacement with the nearly as unhealthful ingredient, palm oil. Don't go away. You'll learn how and why this happened. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you loved your dog, leave them at home. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Each year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. 
Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end without water to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom, so don't support it and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way. Don't bet, don't go to tracks, and avoid parties that celebrate racing. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Okay, so if you've been tuning into the show, you know where we stand on the ethics of palm oil. Its production is a major cause of deforestation and habitat loss, specifically for orangutans. And since it's used in about half of the products on supermarket shelves, one might ask, is it healthy to consume? Well, the answer is no. Palm oil is extremely high in saturated fats. One tablespoon of palm oil contains 55% of the daily recommendation of saturated fat. Remember the difference between unsaturated and saturated fats? Unsaturated fats are found mainly in plants. These fats, usually known as the good fats, because they are very beneficial to one's health. They can lower the level of the bad cholesterol in your blood and increase the good cholesterol. Food examples are nuts, seeds, avocados, and oils, like olive oil and canola oil. And then you have your saturated fats, or bad fats. Why are they bad? Because they're known to be associated with increased risk of heart disease, cancer, and stroke. How does that happen? Well, in a nutshell, these fats, unlike the unsaturated fats, are solid at room temperature. So just think of them as solidifying or being solid in your arteries and heart, causing stroke and heart attacks. Where do you find these saturated fats? Chicken, beef, pork, lamb. Saturated fats are also in cheese, butter, ice cream. And guess what? In palm oil. Number one cause of death for both men and women in the U.S., heart disease, followed by cancer. Not to mention we're all getting fat, too. And of course, with that comes high blood pressure and diabetes. But the common diseases that afflict Americans today are not just the natural consequences of aging or genetics. It's our diets. It's all the animal products and saturated fats we're consuming. And we know and studies show that as animal products increase in a nation's diet and a population, we see the risk of cancer, heart attack and stroke go up accordingly. Americans are eating huge amounts of saturated fats in their diets. And this comes from animals and animal products like cheese. And I know I'm digressing here. Americans love cheese. According to a recent study, Americans are eating 23 pounds of cheese each year, triple the amount consumed in 1970. And did you know that cheese is addicting? Yes, you can become addicted to cheese. You see, the main protein in cheese is casein. And when you digest this milk protein, casein, you get a product called casomorphine. 
Casomorphine-like morphine triggers the opioid effect in the brain. It's the brain chemical responsible for feeling of pleasure, feeling of euphoria. Casomorphine has the opioid effect, hence cheese is addictive. And indeed, I think if you ask any vegan, most of them would say the hardest thing they had to give up when becoming vegan was the cheese. At least that certainly was the case for me and Peter. Anyway, Americans love fat, especially the fat you find in animals and their products, the saturated fat. Okay, so let's get back on track here. Palm oil, extremely high in saturated fat. So now switching gears, because recently a ban went into effect, eliminating trans fats from packaged items and restaurant foods. Trans fats or trans fatty acids? We sort of always heard they were bad for us, but what are trans fats? Well, they're formed when liquid oil is treated with hydrogen gas and made solid. And by the way, by doing this, you increase the shelf life of foods. So that's a good reason why food manufacturers would want trans fats in their products. And they are bad for you. So we talked about saturated fats, right? The bad kind of fat, the kind of fat that is in animal products and clogs your arteries. But trans fats are even worse. Trans fats raise LDL, bad cholesterol, and make you more likely to get heart disease and stroke. And they also lower HDL, the good cholesterol. So you find them in a bunch of snack foods like cookies, crackers, margarine, microwave popcorn, french fries, and other fried fast foods. And it's been shown there's an increase in death from many causes associated with a high intake of trans fats. Higher intake of trans fats have been consistently associated with an increased stroke rate in various population studies. Now, back in January 2006, the FDA required the food industry to openly note the amount of trans fats in foods on the nutrition facts label. And shortly later, I think it was the same year, 2006, New York City was the first city in the U.S. to ban trans fats in foods sold by restaurants and bakeries. And then the trend started going in that direction, slowly pushing to get these fats out of our foods. And in fact, it was estimated that the consumption of trans fats fell by 78% in a 9 to 10-year span. I think it was from 2003 to 2012, and probably due to the labeling rule and subsequently reformulation of foods. And if you pay attention to marketing labels, you probably noticed more and more snack type foods being labeled as having zero grams of trans fat. But without getting too far into the topic of misleading food labels, zero grams of trans fats on the food label doesn't necessarily mean there's not any trans fat in that product. I believe that if a product contains less than 0.5 grams per serving of trans fat, then the manufacturer can label as zero grams of trans fat. So a food can contain up to 0.49 grams of trans fat and still be labeled as zero grams. Anyway, in November 2013, the FDA made a preliminary determination that trans fats are not recognized as safe. And then, of course, there was this big push by the FDA to ban trans fats in the food supply. And in 2015, companies had three years until June 2018 to remove them from products and grocery stores. And indeed, here we are. Trans fats are banned from packaged items and restaurant foods. 
So what happened during this time when you got the forced labeling and these health concerns of the trans fat? Companies had begun to reduce their reliance on trans fats and what takes its place in all their products? Palm oil. And indeed, we saw that at the time when companies began to restrict their use of trans fats in the early 2000s, the imports of palm oil in the U.S. have grown dramatically. In 2012, the United States imported around seven times as much palm oil as it had in 1999 when the FDA first proposed mandatory labeling. And the decreasing use of partially hydrated oil was one of the reasons. And according to USDA data, U.S. imports of palm oil more than doubled between 2005 and 2012. So most American consumers have likely increased their consumption of palm oil over the last several years. And as I stated earlier, unlike most vegetable oils, palm oil is loaded with saturated fat, right? Meaning it's solid at room temperature. And again, one tablespoon of palm oil contains 55% of the daily recommendation of saturated fat. It's associated with increased risk of heart disease, cancer, and stroke. So if you are a conscientious, compassionate American who cares about your health, cares about the environment, and our beautiful non-human animals, many of whom are endangered and live in the tropical forest, you should be demanding that the palm oil in our favorite foods be only deforestation-free palm oil. And if you ask me, instead of what manufacturers have been doing, substituting the trans fats with palm oil, Substitute with a vegetable oil like canola oil or soybean oil, which contains more unsaturated fats, much healthier for you, better for the environment, and better for the orangutans. Welcome back to the show. Do you know what a vervet monkey is? Well, there's an organization in South Africa dedicated to their rehabilitation, to education about them, and to providing sanctuary to monkeys who need it. I want to welcome Josie Dutoy, director at Vervet Monkey Foundation. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Peter. So what is a vervet monkey and what is the foundation? A vervet monkey um, is a monkey that's found across Africa. And they live in family groups, so they're basically like a grey, medium-sized monkey. They are found all over Africa, and there's different subspecies of the vervet monkey. The vervet monkey foundation was actually found in 1993, and the way it started was, um, in fact, Dave Dutoy found this tiny vervet monkey about the, it just fitted into the size of his, the palm of his hand and one of his farm workers had brought him this monkey as he didn't know what to do with it so um, this basically started the whole foundation from finding this one monkey and they found the monkey and he, he thought what do I do with this monkey because you know he didn't he didn't really know much about them um, so he took it to nature conservation the authorities thinking that they would be able to help him and to his dismay, actually, the authorities said, you know what, vervet monkeys are vermin. So you must actually just take him behind the house, just put him in a plastic bag, and smack him with a shovel and kill him. Oh, so 
you can imagine Dave's dismay to hear this, being somebody who was an animal lover himself, grew up in the beekeeping business um, and, you know, worked in nature his whole life. So it was the one finding of this little monkey who was actually called Regus that started the whole foundation off. And it was Dave and Arthur Hunt that actually started the foundation after trying to save the life of this one monkey. They had basically court case after court case, you know, trying to get the velvet monkey protected um, and not be, not be vermin. So they looked into why this monkey was was classed as vermin, what perceptions people were having of this monkey in Africa, and that that started this amazing sanctuary, which is now full of 600 monkeys. So they fought to save the life of one, which has now turned into 600. And basically what we're seeing is monkeys arriving at the sanctuary, um, either because farmers will shoot them, they, they can see them as pets, Residents will actually shoot them with pellet guns sometimes if they come into um, their houses. You know, they're kind of seen as this um, animal that's, that's a pest and we're not really looking into what we can do to prevent perceived problems. Um, when you look at the complex of complexities of the velvet monkeys, they live in family social groups like we do. You know, they feel fear, they feel pain, um, they look after their young and they even will take adopted orphans that we put together with them. So we're finding more and more that human-wildlife conflict within South Africa is becoming a huge problem. The monkeys are easily, you know, snared, poisoned. Um, they're even used for things like traditional medicine, such as muti, where their limbs are chopped off. Um, they're bitten by dogs. Mm. And even in some cultures, we're finding more and more, um, when we look into people's perceptions of them, we've actually found that they believe the monkeys are associated with witchcraft, and therefore people are stoning them and burning them alive. And it's it's absolutely horrific stories that you hear. There's not much education done at all in the way of living peacefully with wildlife in South Africa. And that's something that the foundation really wants to strive to educate, you know, school children and the community to actually live peacefully with nature and to look into the reasons as why people see animals here as a pest. Because it, although the foundation actually got the velvet monkey taken off the vermin list in 2005, in some places they're still considered vermin. Um, and you can easily get a permit, unfortunately, to shoot them if the animals are becoming a bother to you. We've created this sanctuary now, um, and our next stage is going to be what we're going to call the Vervet Forest. Well, we're going to get to the Vervet Forest, but tell us a little bit about uh, rescuing and rehabilitating these monkeys. Sure. So, to give you an idea, Peter, last year we received 39 baby monkeys. Some of their mums were shot, um, some of them were hit by cars and so on whilst they were carrying their young. And we basically will put them into um, our rehabilitation system. So when, we first, when the baby first arrives, what we need to do is bottle feed them because obviously they don't have the mum's milk. So we learn, we teach them how to feed up a bottle. And then after that, what we'll do is they go to a system where they learn to drink off a feeding station. And then once they're at six weeks old, we're actually able to put them with a monkey foster mum. And amazingly, these vervet monkeys want to take care of these young that aren't even their own. They're absolutely amazing with them, which means we can actually put them with a monkey foster mum from one of our troops. So a troop size is, say, around 40 individuals. Um, we'll bring that mum into a, another area with the baby who will stay in there for another six weeks before we can let mum and baby out together to join their new family group. And this works really well. So by the time the baby's three months old, it's totally hands-off from us at six weeks old, and we can actually give them a family like they once had 
albeit within electrified fencing, but within indigenous bush of the sanctuary. So this is the orphan stage. We can also do direct releases. So if we have a car accident, for example, um, a juvenile might come into us, you know, have broken bones, and we, we would take it to the vet. And then afterwards, as long as we know where the tooth location is, if we're told what time of day the monkey was found, roughly the, the right location, what we'll do in our team is, is to follow up and find those monkeys in the wild, and then we'll be able to directly release that monkey back providing we know where their group is. Um, unfortunately, we can't just release individual monkeys unless we know where their troop is, which is too dangerous. They, they do need their troop to survive. Tell us about the Vervet Forest movie and the video series. Yeah, the Vervet Forest is actually really amazing how it came to be. Um, we have a volunteering program here where people can come over to South Africa and volunteer to help the monkeys. And in 2007, a volunteer called Carl Salazar was here. And it was a few years ago that he actually wrote a proposal to us to say that he's a film director from Los Angeles. He would like to create this incredible film called The Velvet Forest. And he started to put this film together. He came out, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And he created the Velvet Forest movie, which is all about the story of five orphaned monkeys. Um, it also goes to talk about habitat destruction with outside speakers in. Um, and it, it incorporates a whole lot of South African culture, but also the lives of these orphans, where they came from, where they are now. Um, which is a really touching movie. He then went on to create the Velvet Forest YouTube series, which is the series of small video clips of each orphan that comes into the sanctuary each season to show you know, their individual personalities, their characters, how they're playing, how they're actually then bonding with this mum that's not even there. So he, he created that along with the Velvet Forest movie, which we're trying to get out internationally, been to film festivals, and we're also looking for people to actually screen that movie with you know, looking at different venues and places that we can actually show the movie to spread awareness about what's happening to these vervet monkeys in Africa because once you understand the monkey um, you can peacefully live with them and it, it's amazing how you know some people see them as this incredible species to watch highly intelligent and yet you know another one will see them as a pest and that's what he's done is to create this, this movie around it so that we can spread awareness for the primates there as well. Uh, you mentioned the volunteer program and indeed it's a very well developed uh, program and it really attracts an international crowd. Tell us a little bit of, about that. Sure. In fact, Peter, I actually started off as a volunteer myself. But it's amazing. Um, I'm from England, and it's amazing, you know, by volunteering at one sanctuary, how far it gets you in terms of, you know, your passion and meaning in life. And you can actually choose to volunteer, come out to South Africa for as little as two weeks although we do encourage four-week stays, and you can really get involved with day-to-day -day running the sanctuary. So you might be preparing food for the monkeys, you might be, you know, changing water bowls, um, collecting vegetation, looking after baby monkeys. So when the babies first arrive, we do need to bottle feed them, as I say. Um, we do need to, you know, literally hug them and care for them like their mum would do so in preparation for them going out into their new group. Long-term stays, for example, you know, people who decide for three to six months or even internships we have for, say, a year long, um, they might be involved with the whole social integration system and learning about the behavior of the vervet monkeys, how they live within, you know, different groups within the hierarchy um, and, you know, really doing the observations and releasing those animals for the first time into the group. 
there's a lot of variety. We can use lots of different skills, you know, whether it's people in, even in graphic design or fundraising, animal care, you know, behaviour. There's so many skills, construction that we could we could actually use here. People stay within kind of basic bush living. So they stay within wooden cabins um, in what we call a volunteer village. You know, they get up every morning. It might say start at 7 o'clock and finish around half past four in the afternoon. They're working together with other international people. Um, at the moment, we've got around 30 volunteers, which um, we're actually full, which is fantastic. And every single person plays a part to help these monkeys. And it's incredible what's actually being done. We even had a vegan chef volunteer who was here who actually taught school chefs. So local school chefs, he taught them um, how to cook plant-based meals. So we're, we're really reaching out into the community. So it goes far beyond just the sanctuary. Um, we're trying to do the education, the community outreach, and, of course, creating the Vervet Forest as well. We've been speaking with Josie Dutoy with Vervet Monkey Foundation. Uh, tell us the website where people can learn more and, uh, and see all the uh, videos and Instagram photos. Sure. We've got um, the one website is www.vervit.za.org and the other website for the Vervit Forest is www.thevervitforest.com and the Vervit Forest is going to be an alive and thriving ecosystem for rehabilitated primates and wildlife to live free from harm for generations to come and that's what we're trying to create. We really want to invite partners to help us into creating the dream for the monkeys, but also for sustainable living and ethical living coming from kindness and compassion. So do read about the website. I really hope that the listeners um, will have a look at the trailer and the documentary on the Burbit Forest website. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you very much, having Peter. More with Animals Today after the break. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier too without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Lori. Peter. Uh, I'm feeling a little annoyed today. Why? Uh, I don't know. I saw... uh, Maybe I shouldn't be annoyed. It was just like a dog and dog's guardian or owner, and dog's got multicolored toenail polish on all the toenails, all different colors. And I'm like, that's annoying. Should I be annoyed by that? I don't know. It's probably not hurting the dog, but... Why do they do it? Yeah, I don't know. I have a multicolored toenail dog. You know what they call that? No. Dog potacures. Oh, boy. Well... 
that annoys me. Actually, there are a lot of things that annoy me about pet owners and guardians and their and their dogs. They're my pet peeves about pets. Do you have anything that annoy you that people do with their animals? Oh, boy. <laughs> Where do we start? Where do we start? Well, let me just uh, continue this thought. And I guess I'm not that annoyed by the nail polish, except for I think it's very silly. But I saw a photo online recently of a tattooed dog. Okay? No, that's bad. So that's really... I don't like okay, that. Okay, we don't, we don't like that. Right. So that's like not even a pet peeve. That's like you're a crazy, horrible person. Okay. So what annoys you about people and their dogs? Number one pet peeve, I would say breeders. Oh, like the whole class of people. Yeah, oh, breeders. Yeah. Okay. Like, Number two, uh-huh. breeders who say they love dogs. Oh. Right? You mean the ones who are uh, selling them? I yeah. Mean, it sort of gets intertwined, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. I love dogs. But if you love dogs, then you wouldn't be breeding when you mm. know that millions of dogs in our shelters are dying every year, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, Number three. Wait, you oh. have to keep the breed alive. I'm yeah, just doing yeah, that. I know. Uh, yeah. Send, uh, Number three. Okay. Breeders. <laughs> breeders that rescue dogs. Oh. Because then they're not being consistent. Yeah. And they're using that as an excuse so they could breed dogs, right? Oh, I rescue, so it's okay. I'll breed yeah. more dogs. Oh, I've heard that dozens of times. Okay, I'll get off the subject of breeders <laughs> okay. now. Okay. You know what really bothers me is when you see the dogs on the hot asphalt and you know that it's got to be hurting the paws and the owner or the guardian or whoever's walking them is just oblivious or doesn't care. They wouldn't even walk barefoot themselves on the asphalt and it's just too hot and dogs like hopping and you just know they're uncomfortable. It's just so Oh, not only that, I mean, it can cause first, second degree burns. I know. The skin can come off and bloody paws. I know. You're right. They are oblivious to that, similar to leaving their dogs in the car on a hot day or a warm day, right? Yes, I know you've... That's uh, another pet peeve. You've... uh, opined about that oh you better believe it <laughs> yeah, more than I opined i know uh you love the opportunity to break into uh, love it yes love it yes you're two hammers in your car at all time <laughs> all ready to do it <laughs> you know what else really bugs me is just when people want to buy these popular dogs like a dog breed gets popular right like when the obamas got their Portuguese water dog and then all the breeders start breeding these animals and everyone wants them as if anyone cares and uh, the Dalmatian deal after uh, after one of those Dalmatian movies. Yes, Peter, as we know research shows that, that the release of films featuring dogs can influence the popularity of certain breeds for up to a decade yeah, boy. and the more successful the film the greater the impact. Like you said we saw a huge surge in the Dalmatian purchases after the movie 101 Dalmatians came out in 1985 and similarly sales of collies rose by 40% after the release of Lassie Come Home that was in 1943 and the popularity of old English sheepdogs increased 100-fold after 1959 Disney film The Shaggy Dog. Now, I read the impact was more marked in the early 20th century when there was less competition for television and the internet and other films. Scientists have warned such films could be bad for dogs, as these popular breeds often have the most inherited disorders. You know, I don't see how this phenomenon ends, unfortunately. But how about something a little bit more benign? What do you think about the folks who dress their dogs up in costumes like around Halloween or or the other holidays? You, you know, I think it's okay as long as it's safe for the dogs and they use common sense, right? Okay, I guess I can't get too upset about that. Some of the costumes are 
really cute. They are cute. I know. Okay, okay. Oh, I have a good one. Shoot. Biggest pet peeve. One of my biggest pet peeves. Testicles on dogs. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yes. Okay. Also, I've heard you uh, uh, scream when you see like dogs in the back of pickup trucks. Oh, I know. And they're unrestrained and they're just like, you know, guys driving along and got big dog in the back and, oh, don't worry. He's safe back there. It really annoys me. Yeah. Yeah, that is legit, okay? Right. How about the dog on a lap when you're driving? I know. Oh, well, it's only a little dog. And you see these old people with their handicap stickers with their dog on the lap, yeah, right? Yeah, As if they need more distraction. Right, exactly. I know, I know. How about clogs on a dog? We have a Clog. neighbor who puts clogs on their dog when yeah, they walk. I know. Like, is this supposed to be... A to fashion pr- thing? Or, or is a it hot pr- weather thing? Yeah, or is I, it supposed to protect their dog? The dog clearly, clearly is not happy about wearing these shoes. You see the little high-stepping maneuvers? It, it's just laughable, actually. I don't get it. And in our neighborhood, we often walk past a house and there's a gate and you can see a dog behind the gate just looking out so lonely oh i know which dog you're talking about and we're like oh this dog would love to play or say hi to our dogs and we even once encountered the owner of the house and asked him if his dog wants any company he said no looks like not interested right he's fine yeah He's oh, fine. it's just so, it's heartbreaking almost. Gives you his little sad lonely eyes yeah the dog wants a little attention you better believe it yeah what do you think about people who bike with their dog? Oh, that's a whole interesting topic there. I will say occasionally it seems okay. The biker seems to have a clue and the dog understands how the game is played. But much too often I see out of control and an accident waiting to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, most of the time I would say. Yeah. I mean, unless and, you actually really train your dog to do this well, I don't see how it can and, be And safe. it's a dog who can do it, you know? It's right, got to be exactly. just the right. The other thing that bugs me about cyclists and nothing against people on bikes, but please, if you are riding and you see someone walking with their dogs, give the dog and the person some space, okay? Right. Because the dog is on a leash, and before you know it, they can be four feet or five feet closer to you than you thought. So you got to give them some space, So many times we're walking our dogs, and these bikers come out of nowhere down the hill two feet from where we are. Yeah. Lori, I was sort of in a bad mood starting the segment, but you're pretty excited now too, aren't you? I like being annoyed with people and pet peeves. How about the elderly person who adopts a young dog? Yeah. Is that annoying or what? I hope that phenomenon is fading. You see it once in a while. It's just not that smart. And finally, the mother of all pet peeves, right? The mother, the grandmother, not picking up after your dog. Yeah. Right? And that's like a basic thing. So you just got to do that. Now, around here... Unfortunately, we are blamed for other people's poo once in a while. We sure are. And that's not correct, just because we're known as dog people and dog advocates. So uh, they see poop on a lawn, they automatically say, that must be Lori and I Peter's dogs. I don't know why they think that. I know. Okay. We've been falsely accused many times, right? You know, any time someone sees me walking around, it's usually with a bag in my hand. Right. Filled bag. We are... The best poop picker-uppers around. So everyone should be like us. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay, I think that's enough complaining for one segment of I the show. I feel so much better. Okay. Me too. Okay. Good, I'm glad I turned your mood around. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals. 